Jonathan Reckford has been the CEO of Habitat for Humanity since 2005. Before that, he served as an executive at Circuit City and the Walt Disney Company, as well as an executive pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Minnesota. Under his leadership, Habitat for Humanity has grown from serving 25,000 families per year to serving over 300,000. Today, he will discuss worldwide housing issues amid this generational health and economic crisis. Let's listen in. It is a delight to be with you all. I was sharing with just a few of us who were on early. Um, I love the mission of No Labels because I think it is needed so desperately in our polarized government and polarized world right now. And it is, um, and I'm all about practical solutions. So I love that too. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Habitat, um, but we have always been about bridging uh, and knocking down barriers and bringing people together. And I have built with blacks and whites in South Africa and Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, Muslims and Christians in Egypt, Hindus and Muslims in India. And I have even built with Democrats and Republicans together. So it just shows with God, anything is possible. But we are... um, The focus of my remarks today will be on housing, uh, both why it is so critical, which um, I take for granted, but but not everyone does, and how supply, increasing the supply of housing for low and moderate income families can be a part of the solution, but also looking at how it's been a part of the problem that underlies some of the the really tough challenges our country is facing right now, and how we can maybe uh, some practical ideas to, to move forward with that. I just want to acknowledge first, uh, adjectives don't really do a good job. This has been one of the the most emotionally devastating uh, periods, certainly in in, uh, recent history for me, to have the COVID crisis, which is a you know the the worst global pandemic I've certainly ever experienced, and then to have the the explosion uh, and anger over these uh, justice issues with people being killed in the last few weeks is, uh, is both heartbreaking and I think is, is, a, is a terrible test of our, uh, of our government systems uh, that I hope we can rise to. Habitat believes, and I certainly believe, that everyone should have a safe, decent, and affordable place in which to live. And what's been interesting is for a long time, I've always been shocked how invisible the issue of affordable housing has been. If you ask the average person in the U.S. before the last couple of years, it would rank usually around seventh or eighth on social needs. Um, But it's really interesting. If you talk to people who didn't have adequate housing, it would be right at the top. And my, you know, occasionally uh, jaded observation is now, last year, right before COVID, the U.S. Conference of Mayors said housing affordability was the number one issue in our country. And I think it finally hit the boiling point because middle-class families, their children suddenly couldn't afford housing. And so it became personal in a new way versus the way many of our communities have increasingly become economically segregated. Many of us can live and work in ways where we never experienced poverty housing or substandard housing. And now the coronavirus has put a bright light on this long existent problem. And, you know, I don't know for you, for me, social distancing and going virtual has been frustrating and inconvenient, but not that hard. We have a good internet connection. We have plenty of room in our house for all of our family members to be able to, we have good internet connections. I can have food delivered uh, and have confidence in my family safe. But if you can imagine the plight of those trying to shelter in place while living in unthinkable conditions, of the 18 million families who are trying to Uh, deal with the financial implications when they're already paying more than half their income on rent uh, and have very little paycheck left. And I think, unfortunately, the the needed call to shelter in place has reinforced the economic inequality divide. Uh, We have a a painful history, and we could have a side conversation about that. Richard Rothstein wrote a devastating data-driven book called The Color of Law, about how systematically the federal government and many local governments around the country um, organized housing along racial lines. And that led to the whole uh, incidence of redlining. And in many ways, that has come to light as one piece of a broader set of symptoms that we have seen uh, in the escalation of of outrage uh, 
and the protests that have, have come out in this past week, there is a huge supply gap. Just economically, the market in many ways has failed. Jim's been a champion with us of trying to make markets work internationally and getting housing microfinance to be available to very low-income families around in developing countries so they can improve their housing. I would argue now we have housing market failure in the U.S. because the supply of housing hasn't been able to keep up with the demand. There's a huge imbalance. And uh, before COVID, home prices in two-thirds of U.S. cities had hit record highs. And you would think with the crisis we're in that home prices would have dropped, but because fewer houses are on the market, that hasn't happened yet. As the quarantine continues, housing demand is falling as buyers have lost jobs or become leery of economic uncertainty, but housing supply has also dropped for the same reasons, and that's left prices about the same. But even if housing prices come down off their peaks, we're seeing incomes go down much faster. 40 million people unemployed already. Uh, I just saw, um, the I'm on the Atlanta Fed um, regional board for the Federal Reserve, and they have, a, I think, the best actual uh, GDP predictive, predictive model. And they just updated the model yesterday to expecting second quarter GDP to be down 51%. Uh, you know, none of us have ever experienced anything like that before, and we hope uh, it will not be a permanent uh, piece. I think the Fed's view which has now been talked about quite a bit is that this isn't going to be a V recovery or even a U recovery. It's going to be more of a Nike swoosh recovery where we get sharply down and then a very long, slow, gradual uh, build back. I obviously hope it will be faster, uh, but I don't know if we can expect it. And the saddest part, both about COVID crisis, but now the protests on top of that is the most vulnerable always suffer the most. So the, the minority of people who are looting and creating violence and burning and destroying things are all going to exacerbate the economic pain that uh, some of our least advantaged citizens are already feeling. The problems that caused us to be in a housing crisis before the pandemic are going to continue to be barriers. And to me, it's really interesting to get practical. How do you actually solve it? It has to be a multi-sector solution. We're going to need the public sector, the private sector, and civil society coming together uh, to come up with practical solutions at the local level, and then we're gonna need state and federal support for that. If you look at why we got here, uh, there is a whole zoning piece and we can talk about that, but then in the basics of supply, the cost of land has accelerated far faster than incomes. And a big piece of that is these extraordinarily low interest rates, uh, which we help with affordability, but it means people are looking for places to uh, to put money and we're seeing uh, a disproportionate housing investment. Uh, cost of materials, even though we've been in a low inflation environment, building materials have actually been going up faster than incomes and skilled labor is in short supply. And the immigration, which is a whole other debate, has been one of the historic valves bringing in additional skilled construction labor. And we have a significant shortage. So many, many builders tell me uh, they could do building much faster if they could hire more people. Uh, which goes back to the solution side. And the other piece, uh, particularly in the West Coast, but in major cities, is that the regulatory environment is prohibited as well. So the cost and time to build has gone up dramatically in many, many cities. And that creates another tax that makes it very difficult to afford. So if you're a, a golden-hearted private sector developer and want to build for low-income families, the math just doesn't work, even in an incredibly favorable low-cost low city like a Charlotte, North Carolina. The math is completely impossible in a place like New York or much of coastal California. And cities are economic engines. And it's fascinating with COVID whether that will change the pattern as we learn we can work virtually. Um, but you can't really stop people from moving to the job. So how do we make sure that we can create enough housing to keep up with growth? And what's happened is generally we have pushed service workers uh, out into the distant suburbs in search of affordable housing. And that is just exacerbated the challenge. And it ends up being actually bad for everybody. It's bad for the environment. It's horrific for their families if they're commuting 90 minutes or two hours a day uh, each way. And that's expensive as well. If you think of rent being your core rent or mortgage plus your utilities plus the cost to get to work, that's really sort of the true reflection of housing. Uh, 
And what we see, and, and as I work towards closing, uh, sort of why housing, and I never want to take this for granted, it is clearly not the only need. And what sometimes nonprofits have been guilty of is we'll say housing will be the solution to everything. Education people would say education is the answer. Health people will say health is the answer. Jobs people will say jobs is the answer. They're all correct. And, and we're all wrong at the same time. What we've really learned, and, and it's so clear, is that you need the whole gestalt in order to have a healthy community. Those are all pieces of a healthy community. But I would argue, actually, in many ways, housing is a prerequisite. And there's such overwhelming data that children who grow up in good housing have better health outcomes, better educational outcomes, and better career trajectories, particularly if those houses are in mixed-income mixed mixed income communities. If you pull housing out with the stability it provides, um, what we then see are children who don't stay healthy, don't do well in school, and we see um, this brutal cycle of poverty that has um, trapped so many sub-communities within this country and so many communities around the world. Historically, housing has always been bipartisan, and so it is, it's an area often we've been able to find agreement. Habitat has always uh, been fiercely nonpartisan. We are pro-housing and we're doing more advocacy work than ever. We've launched our first ever advocacy campaign called Cost of Home to bring attention to the need and try to help 10 million more Americans have access to affordable housing. When I first joined Habitat, we had both President Carter and uh, Jack Kemp on the board. And I just thought that was great. They would never agree on economic policy, but they both cared really deeply about improving conditions in our cities uh, and, and across our country. And that was, uh, and I think that's really important that we have champions in both party for housing. It is, um, it's been a tough time for Habitat like so many others. Uh, we've had to make cutbacks. Uh, our economic model is based on families paying for our homes. We don't give them away and paying back an, an affordable mortgage. Well, many of our families are struggling to pay. We're at the front end of supporting forbearance on those mortgage payments and restructuring mortgages. But that's, of course, cash flow that's not coming back in. We also run a chain of 900 plus Habitat for Humanity restores, which are thrift stores for used housing products. And they've all been shut down. They were just beginning to reopen. But every month they closed, we've lost $43 million. Uh, and that's another revenue source for us. And then finally, of course, some of our we are mostly privately funded, and for some of our donors, uh, especially corporate donors who have been hit hard by COVID, um, that's impacted their ability to come out. So this is a concerning time for us. Uh, and of course, we're as a lender, we are for forbearance, but if there's no support for lenders, that's a challenge. Small nonprofits, including many of our local affiliates, have been able to get the CARES funding, which has been hugely helpful. HFHI, our umbrella group, is too large. So we're part of a relatively small group of large nonprofits uh, that haven't been able to get any assistance to, uh, to get through this piece. It is, um, so that as we think about solutions, and this is where I wanna close, the, we believe that housing as infrastructure solves multiple problems in many ways. So if we think both about a, a racial equity lens, um, creating mixed income housing is a critical part of undoing uh, some of the very intentional uh, segregation of, uh, that happened uh, back 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and kept going all the way into the 60s and early 70s in cities around the country. And we still have zoning that effectively locks out any low and moderate income housing in huge swaths of our cities in the country today. If there's an incredible economic multiplier for housing as well, the latest estimates from National Association of Home Builders that the average single family house that's built generates 2.9 jobs and $130,000 in taxes. So it's one of these that if we're thinking about stimulus and we're thinking about economic recovery, uh, this would be a core part of infrastructure. And we hope Congress will think about housing as infrastructure as we're considering infrastructure bills, because I, I think it would solve, and then it actually solves an extra problem because if we could increase the supply of affordable housing, that was quickly becoming a break in our most, our fastest growing cities were actually running into real growth constraints because they don't have enough housing and therefore they couldn't keep essential workers or couldn't recruit people to come in because they can't afford to come and live in those cities. 
So I've talked about a lot of numbers. I want to remind you that when we talk about numbers, every, there's always a story behind every one of those numbers. I want to share, this is a, a mutual friend of Jim and mine. One of my favorite stories from my new book is uh, it's my friend, Boris Henderson. And Boris uh, is one of those people that just makes the world better. He grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a really rough part of Charlotte. And his neighborhood uh, was called The Hole. And that probably gives you an image of what a great neighborhood it was. They had no indoor plumbing. Uh, they had, uh, he had no place to study. It was a, a very difficult and violent neighborhood. And Boris was flunking first grade. He was one of those kids that easily could have been written off. And uh, he told me in third grade, everything changed for him because his mom qualified to, to buy a Habitat for Humanity home. And Boris and his siblings, they moved to Optimist Park. I love that imagery, moving from the hole to Optimist Park. And it turns out Boris is actually a very smart guy got really good mentoring, got encouragement, got support, ends up with a full scholarship to Davidson College, gets an MBA, goes into banking, then affordable housing, and now is helping with senior care. And he's the first person who grew up in a Habitat House to serve on our international board of directors. And uh, I share it because I'm just happy every time I get to be with Boris. He's, he's a great human being, but more so because you think about all the Borises out there in communities who have so much to offer if they just had the chance. And uh, if we're gonna improve healthcare, we can't forget about housing and it's fundamentally important to, to health. If we're gonna improve educational opportunities, we have to consider the environments in which people study and learn. If we're gonna fashion a, an effective stimulus plan, we need to think about housing and what happens both to people who are losing their jobs and for people who are getting jobs that are shifting. And as I said before, we really need to focus on mixed income, mixed use uh, communities where there are both economic opportunity, access to schools, and where people can live closer to where they work, which ends up making things more sustainable for all of us. So I hope, I believe we need to build way more housing. We also, in this troubled time, need to build community. And um, those know who in our if those of you who know our model, we use volunteers in the U.S. to build the houses under professional supervision. And if we just wanted to build houses, that's probably not the most efficient way. I don't know if any of you have uh, actually come out and volunteered with us. I hope so. And if not, we look forward to when you can come back out with us and volunteer. But it turns out that for some volunteers, that might be the first time they've actually been in that other side of their own city. And it's a chance to bring people together against what is sometimes the most formidable social divide, which is our economic divide. And, uh, and I think it was said most beautifully by one of my favorite Habitat volunteers and heroes, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who sponsored a, a Habitat build in South Africa for years and years. And what he said is, as the physical walls of the house go up, the invisible walls that separate us as a people come tumbling down and hope is built in the community. And it uh, feels like we need a lot of that right now. So more than I meant to say, I look forward to your questions and comments and the conversation. Thank you. Great. Well, th thank you, uh, Jonathan. We got we have uh, several questions here. Uh, first one is from uh, Steve Cushman. Thank you, Jonathan. Steve Cushman, San Diego, California. I want to congratulate you on having one of our finest citizens, who's your executive director, Lori Hart. Hope Filer here, former mayor of Escondido. Um, you've done great work in our community and we appreciate it. Uh, my question for Habitat has always been, and I'm a bit put off by it, the religious side. Mm. I don't understand why what you do should have anything to do with religion, because I know you serve everybody. So um, that's always been a problem for me with Habitat. Hey, Steve, thank you. And please give my best to Lori. She's a, she's a fantastic leader and a great human being. Uh, and you live in one of those not so affordable parts of our, our country for sure. It's, um, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked. For those of you who don't know, Habitat is a, is a Christian uh, organization. And the, the, I think we, the, I want to reemphasize what Steve said, which is we joyfully welcome everyone. So if you, if you look at our mission statement, um, it, it is our motivation, why Habitat was born. And it, it was actually born out of a farm in South Georgia in the 1960s. And this sort of extraordinary prophet, Clarence Jordan, was trying to come up with a solution for sharecropping farmers. But his motivation in doing it was to be 
responsive to God's call to, to care about people in need. But the way that Habitat does its work and the center of our mission statement has always been about bringing people together from the very beginning. And so, in fact, the first Habitat work outside South Georgia was in what is now the Congo. Uh, we're in building in a no man's land between two warring tribes. And there's always been an element of, of reconciliation. So um, what, what, what I would distinguish is that is Habitat's motivation was to be responsive to that. But we are not a church. Uh, we're a, a 501c3 nonprofit. We don't discriminate in either our hiring or, or the way, certainly not in the way we choose and select families uh, or nor in the volunteers. In fact, joyfully welcome everyone in. And my experience is um, that is off-putting for some. The phrase I love, which is God is our center and not our border. So it's it's who we are, but we genuinely want everyone to, to come in and I'll share one quick story um, that I love from a, a different crisis. If you remember when the Tree of Life Synagogue was bombed a couple of years, years ago, the dates are all fuzzy, um, our friends in Durham, North Carolina, were about to finish a house. And there's a synagogue there um, that ironically didn't have their own home. So they were staying in a Presbyterian church and they talked about what should we do in response. And their answer, which I thought was so beautiful, was the next day they came out as a synagogue with uh, their, their sister church and with a mosque and a whole group of citizens and completed a house for an immigrant Muslim family um, who were the, the home buyers of that family. And when I think about you know, building community, that's such a lovely picture of sort of the antidote to the hatred and frustration and destruction you know, we are just seeing all around us. So our hope is, is um, that the way that we serve um, is in a way, personally, the, the way I believe if, if all Christians behave this way or if all people of faith behave this way, our world will be such a better place, which is just serving and loving. And, um, and then good things can come from that. But I hope, I hope that makes sense. Well, I have a question. I, I guess I might call this Real Estate 101. Mm -hmm. um, my question really, what is affordable housing? Is that like a defined term, like the one that we know as far as like tax credits, special depreciation, is it that plus habitat? Is there do um, commercial developers ever build housing that's for moderate, or is it just housing that used to be, you know, more becomes affordable because it becomes old and people leave it? Yeah, uh, you know, it's such a great question. Thank you. We should not take for granted. I mean, in sense all of us want affordable housing, right? So whatever our incomes are, we wanna be able to have housing that we can afford. Typically what the, the standard definition means is that you could, you could afford your shelter on no more than 30% of your income. So that's sort of a first benchmark to think about, which means all across all incomes, we wanna be affordable. I think the, the term affordable housing has a terrible brand. And in fact, we're trying not to talk about it so much. Habitat has this lovely brand Affordable housing, people think Cabrini Green and the old federal housing projects, and, and, uh, and they immediately have kind of a visceral negative effect when they hear it. So we've been talking more about just housing affordability for families at different income levels. And I would say right now we have two big categories that aren't working. One is, is core workforce housing, which are typically for families making between 80 and 120% of median income in a community. And that might be nurses and firefighters and police men and women and teachers, and many of them cannot afford to live in a lot of our more expensive cities. And then more affordable would be down from you know, zero to up to 80% of Habitat's target is to serve families serving between 30 and 80% of area median income. They have steady income, but it's not enough. And then to, on the solution side, it runs the whole gamut. We, we are pretty rare in that we do affordable home ownership, but there's a huge uh, mix of mostly private developers and nonprofit developers who build affordable rental housing and then tons of small landlords as well. And one of the things that I think has been unhelpful in some ways has been nonprofits and well-intended folks against the for-profit developers and sort of saying, if we just tax the developers enough, we'll create affordable housing. And I actually think some of those mechanisms like inclusionary zoning and other things that help create mixed income are positive. But if you don't have carrots as well as sticks, what we end up with is a lot of very high-end units and a token number of, of more affordable units because the developers actually have to 
to build, go more upscale, to have enough profit margin to cover that sort of 10% subsidy. So we need to think about subsidy and there's no country in the world that creates enough housing that's affordable for everybody without subsidy. And then the question is, how do you do really smart subsidy? One of the most effective has been the low income housing tax credits that private developers can use to create rental housing. That's probably been the most effective vehicle for large numbers of rental units. Um, but there's a lot of different vehicles. Technically, um, HUD Section 8 vouchers, of course, are one of the huge vehicles, but only about one in every four families that qualifies for a HUD voucher can actually get one. So there's a, a mismatch there. And often even people with vouchers can't find places that they can rent. So it's um, there are a lot of ways, areas for our opportunities to improve the system right now. But, but it does require subsidy. I mean, the math just doesn't work. And in our case, we subsidize it with restore profits. We subsidize it with charity. And then the family pays for that core house and we rotate those funds. Um, but it wouldn't work without some subsidy. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. And th thanks for the great work of, of your organization. I truly appreciate it. I'm a resident of California and your core product is a single family house, which I couldn't endorse more. California, I think it's fair to say without hyperbole that California, as a matter of, of intense governmental policy, has literally declared war on single family houses uh, and all that comes with it, like the automobile, et cetera. Uh, can you share with us any experiences you have had since your core product crashes right into uh, strong governmental policy in California and probably in other states? What's gonna give? The, are you gonna give up your product or do you get California to accommodate you? Yeah, thank you, Robert. It's um, it, the answer is part of both. Um, California is is the hardest, honestly. If you, I think, thirteen of the fifteen highest cost housing markets in the United States are in coastal California. So it's it is kind of the epicenter with New York City and Hawaii uh, and Honolulu. I think is the is the biggest challenge. California has made it uniquely hard to build. So you've got again tensions, right? Competing goods, but the environmentalists put in policies that made it almost impossible to get building approved. And, um, and then it's been very difficult to get transit approved. So you put the combination together, the entitlements, and then of course, Prop 13 in California really made it tough because you capped property taxes. So when you put all those together, the communities then raised taxes on any new development really high, but they don't waive it for people like Habitat. So they, the, a few years ago, and I suspect it's more now, the per unit entitlements and fees for a habitat house in coastal California was $125,000 a unit. That's more than it costs us to build a house in a bunch of parts of the country. And so it's a huge extra you know, tax on top of the other pieces. In terms of the other side, I would say that um, density really is a factor of land prices. So we can't build single family on million dollar lots. So in that sense, we have to go more dense we have struggled, you know, the toughest for us would be like San Francisco and New York City. And there we build condominiums because the land is so extraordinarily expensive. That's the only solution. Um, in many places within, we can build townhomes, we can build, uh, you know, zero lot line, uh, adjacent homes, quads and duplexes. So there are a number of solutions um, that are out there, but it is, you know, I think that becomes community by community and a factor just of, of what the cost, you know, what's the deficit in terms of how much housing is needed against what is the cost per lot and uh, or entitled lot to, to be able to build. So longer conversation, but I hope that helps a little. Next is uh, Richard Davis. Yes, uh, well, I'm, you know, you've addressed some of my questions in terms of some of the previous answers, because I was gonna focus and am focused on inner cities where, the land isn't there for private houses. Um, and to address the issue, you need a multiple family housing and you need for existing housing, for existing housing, you need the kind of subsidies you talked about, rent, Section 8, et cetera. I would like a little more to know what Habitat does in that context yeah. and a little more expansion on how you think government policy uh, from the federal side. I, you know, I know that uh, you know, the cities 
do do some of these inclusionary zoning. And if you want to zoning up to, you know, you got to build a certain amount of uh, affordable housing. But what are your thoughts about in the inner city uh, context? Yeah, you know, it's, boy, this gets so complex, Rich. Thank you for the question. We've had a really interesting trend right up to COVID. One of the questions that I, I assume it will go back and won't, in the long-term trend will continue. Some people have said, oh, now that we've all gotten used to virtual, people won't all need to live in the city. I think people still want to live in, you know, many people want to live in cities. So the trend was young people and empty nesters moving back into cities and wanting walking environments. And, and that has been mostly a positive trend for cities, except that there's been very rapid gentrification of, of other historically affordable and often minority neighborhoods. And so the challenge then is how do we get all the economic benefits of growth in the city without displacing all of the housing that's affordable and displacing the people that have, been, have lived there maybe for generations as well. And it gets really complex. I actually think home ownership is a key piece of the puzzle because it, and if, you, if you think about it, Habitat's work, we're taking, helping the families in the community have a permanent you know, uh, piece of their community and actually ensuring that they can stay in place. And there've been some creative moves in my hometown of Atlanta um, that's had very rapid, uh, you know, prices have gone up in the southern part of the city, which is the historically low income uh, side of town, prices doubled in 18 months. And some of you have seen that as extreme, but that's, you know, these are extreme jumps because we had this, some incredible creative development that suddenly made, uh, we did this circular park in Atlanta called the Beltline that suddenly created a huge amount of, of value. And, and I think the advice I would have at the city level is set aside land for affordable housing when we're making these huge improvements. So even in the Beltline forming, affordable housing was part of the mandate and mission, but they got tight on funding and they didn't hold the land. They didn't need to build the housing. All they need to do is hold the land. Now the land is literally 10 times as valuable and it's, it's going to be wildly expensive to go back and build the affordable housing when all they had to do was land bank some of that land on the front end and hold it. And then you can put covenants or restrictions for long-term affordability and then still let the market go because most of that value is in the land, not in the house. The math works if you own the house, and uh, but not necessarily the underlying land. So I think as a society, we've got to figure out how to get, I don't think gentrification itself is bad. I think what we need to do is how do we do it inclusively in a way that doesn't force out all the, the current citizens. And in Atlanta, one solution for the homeowners was to raise a private fund that would mitigate future property tax increases for the existing residents and then make sure that they could afford to, to stay there and get the benefits of, of economic upgrading. Um, it's harder to do with renters. And that's where it goes back, I think, a little bit to supply. Um, but these are, these are complex issues. At the federal level, to me, um, it, we actually just need, I would do more tax credit funding. I would do, there's a bipartisan bill that, that we are wildly enthusiastic about that would actually be funding to um, upgrade existing housing and ensure that it stays affordable in workforce neighborhoods in our cities across the country. I, you know, as, as to me, that would be a very practical way to do it because you've got a lot of good housing stock uh, in particularly in sort of historically Rust Belt cities that is decent housing stock, but to bring it up to full code would cost more than the house will appraise for when it's done. And this fund would actually kind of help um, fill that gap so be economically feasible to upgrade that, that housing and get families into it um, versus it just sitting there, uh, which is the, is the great dilemma. So how do we fully utilize the stock that we do have in the cities that aren't the California, the East and West Coast cities? Okay, thanks. I clicked the wrong way. Um, thanks for joining us today, Jonathan. My question is you suggested um, that housing can be part of infrastructure bill, uh, and that makes a lot of sense um, as far as good for America, but do you have some sense on how that might work, what that legislation could conceivably look like? Yeah, we. I would love, and certainly we could um, put together some, some draft pieces. You know, one model, um, that I thought was powerful after the 08, 09, um, you know, which was a housing led uh, debacle for our economy was neighborhood stabilization funding. And in that case, that was a, you know, a big basket of funds that went through HUD. Habitat actually was one of the rare times we, we got a significant chunk of government funding. And that was, that worked really well because it was to buy up 
foreclosed homes or acquire them at very low cost, fix them and sell them into habitat families. And it not only, it helped actually stabilize neighborhoods, which helped the whole housing market, but it also created a bunch of supply for, uh, for families at the same time. So it was a nice twofer. I think there are legs off of that neighborhood stabilization funding um, that could work now. And I think it could tie in in some ways, if we thought about it, to a lot of the, um, you know, the protesting that we're seeing underlying, I think, the, the protesting about policing is a deeper, you know, set of complaints about inequity um, in the neighborhoods and access. And, you know, I, I actually recommend, if you haven't seen it, that Raj Chetty, uh, who's bounced between Harvard and, and Stanford, did a really powerful amount of research that's influenced many of us that really looked at social mobility and it's all data driven and it makes the really brutal case that data is hard to um, to fight that it, a little bit what I mentioned before low income kids in mixed income communities uh, had social mobility that looked a lot like the American dream they still could rise up and move but that low income children in concentrated poverty sections of our country had virtually zero social mobility. I mean, just, it took, you know, minor miracle to break out. And so in some ways, I think incentives in the housing to think about creating, I think it's tough to take the, you know, honestly, I live in one of those and I live in the city of Atlanta, but in the North side um, and my neighbors will fight tooth and nail any apartments at all, which I find so frustrating unless they're the sort of super high end, uh, rental in the business district. And it is, um, so if there could be the carrots as well as, you know, as well as sticks, but I think federal could play a significant role in creating funds that would be stimulus funds or, you know, infrastructure funds, but that would be tied to building or preserving uh, affordable housing and increasing the supply. And then to me, the healthiest would be city by city. You'd have a mechanism for the mayors to, depending on the strong count, strong mayor or the county executives coming together with developers, with uh, community leaders and social sector, and really then laying out what would be the requirements in each one. One, another vehicle is just CDBG, community development block grants. That's been very effective and, and significant funding could be moved through that for housing, which has enough flexibility. Another vehicle are the home funds, which have been used very heavily. And all of those have been uh, under stress. So I, I think there are, existing vehicles, but um, we'd certainly be open to, to creating something new as well. And, and you know, I think many of you have wisdom, but we would just love it to be on the agenda. Uh, and I think maybe the combination of these makes this a timely time to finally get it on the agenda. All right. Now I have a lot of touch points with uh, Habitat for Humanity. I've been on bills around the world in Jordan, Romania. Uh, I live in New York and Brooklyn as well. Although that may seem like a foreign country this week, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of different ones. You also run our software, but the software company run our financials, and we gave employees a week off every year around the world to go on Habitat Bills as one of the few team building activities you can do that's global. So uh, know, know your organization well. So my question is around innovation, though. So all the bills I've been on, it's using traditional building techniques, which you know is part of the fun of it. You get your hand, work with your hands, you meet people. But it's a lot of innovation, mostly in Silicon Valley companies around uh, kind of using Lego block type components where you assemble housing and you're not uh, building and manufacturing a house in the neighborhood, which makes it safer, environmentally friendly. And at least from the companies you talk to, it's 50% cheaper and much faster. And so is any of that applicable or is it just not what you do? I'm just kind of curious going forward. Yeah. Well, first, Charles, thank you. It's... Um... <laughs> I think my global village trip to Jordan with my my son was one of my all time highlights. But it is if for any of you who don't know, and unfortunately this is not the year because we've had to close it all down because of COVID. But we run about a thousand global village trips where we take people from one part of the world and send them to another part of the world to to spend a week in a community building alongside families. And it's a it's ludicrous from a construction perspective, but it is transformational from a learning and heart uh, and relationship perspective. And it's, um, it's very powerful. So I'm, I'm glad you've had that chance. You've asked a great question. It's a funny, um, there are in our um, expensive cities, we have way more volunteer demand than we, have, than we have land to build on. So efficiency is not our highest priority because we actually want to get as many 
volunteers engaged as we can. But that's not true in other places and to the extent to which there were something like a federal stimulus plan or where we wanted to build a lot faster um, or in a post-disaster environment or rural environments, all of those, I think what you're talking about is, is absolutely critical. And so we're excited about it. Internationally, we've probably been more innovative than we have in the U.S. in some ways. Um, and the building codes are less flexible in the U.S. and it's, uh, it's, it's tougher to, to move. I'm pretty excited about modular housing. We, after, I joined when Hurricane Katrina hit and everybody wanted to come to New Orleans and build, but we had all these communities in Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi where you didn't have all that demand. And we had years of building to do. And so there we partnered with a couple of modular housing factories and they would build the house sort of 60% finished, but particularly leveraging um, plumbers and electricians and the skilled labor that was really scarce. And then our volunteers on the ground could do the, the finishing and the sweat equity that the families put in to finish the houses. I think that, I think modular used to have a, when people used to hear modular, they would think the trailers, it's yeah, come it's a long way. Now, now there's really high end modular housing that's built beautifully. And since we have a shortage of skilled labor, it's a great way to leverage um, those, those rare trades that you don't have enough of. So I think we're quite open to it. And some, uh, we do a version of it with Habitat where in the bad weather places like Minneapolis and Edmonton, Canada and others, we do housing factories in the winter and build all the frames and wall units and wire them and get them all ready so that when the sun finally comes back out and people can uh, break through the permafrost, they can build really fast in the, in the five or six warm days of the year. But it is, um, I'm a former Minnesotan, um, <laughs> but it is, so I think we, we're looking at it. We have some friends who are doing 3D printing. It, that's not quite ready for prime time yet, but we're, we're watching it. And certainly 3D printing of specific parts or, uh, or fittings um, is moving much faster and uh, as part of the supply chain. Um, so I, I do think there are um, innovations and needed innovations. Housing largely is built an awful like the way it was built 100 years ago when the rest of the world has just zoomed uh, past. And, and I think now with the scarcity of labor, that may speed up some adoption of better technology. The materials have gotten infinitely better. You know, when we started, gosh, when I started, we wanted to show, it's hard to believe now, but, you know, 15 years ago, only rich people had green houses. You know, it was viewed as a luxury product. And we wanted to show that low-income families who need the energy efficiency um, should do it. So we partnered with Home Depot and built 5,000 highly energy efficient habitat houses. And what we were able to prove is that the family was better off paying more in their mortgage for that super energy efficient house. Now there's a, there's a sort of Pareto optimal place on the curve. You know, we do build net zero houses, but that's actually not as economically efficient for a family to buy. And we want to do it for where the sweet spot is for the family, but the family could pay more because their monthly cost of ownership was going to go down. And then the good news there is that the building materials on energy efficiency have gotten so much better from 10 years ago and 15 years ago. And so I think on, on the material side, the, build, the houses have gotten far better, but on the construction technology side, um, we're, we're still behind. And, and we're working with you know, the home building industry and some of our partners and looking at it, but we'll probably not be the cutting edge or bleeding edge on that, but try to be a fast follower of seeing what works. Thank you. Lee, I, I just want to add one thing to that, to that if I could, because it, uh, at the last uh, Habitat board meeting in Mexico, there was a sort of a little shark tank um, yeah. uh, competition with uh, some uh, people, you know, housing entrepreneur, methodology entrepreneurs. So, I mean, this is a it's 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 not a the major activity of Habitat, but it is something that that uh, Habitat is looking at. No, thank you, Jim. And and we actually want to bring some of it back to the U.S. We we have a center for innovation in shelter that started with trying and with Jim's strong help trying to get the market to the, the housing finance microfinance industry to begin lending to families. And we raised a wholesale fund and uh, and started making wholesale loans to microfinance banks so they would start and training them to start housing portfolios. And that has worked unbelievably well. And the next step was then advocacy around land rights and making sure that people had the right to stay on their land. And then the, the next evolution as we tried to impact the whole housing value chain was to look at the, the, the building materials 
and building products. So we've been investing and we have a venture fund that is investing alongside for-profit entrepreneurs that are coming up with better building products for very low-income families, as well as, as the skilled trades and access to good quality tradespeople in low and moderate income contexts. I do think we need some of that back in the U.S., but Jim, thanks for raising that. So uh, Bill Galston has the next question. First of all, you know, thanks for sharing your time with us, Jonathan. Thanks, you know, and, and your insights. Uh, I'm going to push you a little bit on the public policy front, because that's where I'm coming from. Uh, I find that contrary to much wisdom about the life cycle, the older I get, the more impatient I become. Uh, and, you know, I took careful notes on what you said about the causes of rising uh, you know, housing prices. Uh, we have a big problem, and it's a structural problem. And I have never seen big structural problems addressed successfully with laundry list solutions. Doesn't mm -hmm. happen. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so my, my question is, you, you said that it's going to require a three-way collaboration, public sector, private sector, civil society. I'm, you know, that's, that sounds right to me, but on the public sector side, what does your dream omnibus housing legislation look like? And why don't you take the lead to put together a group to draft it and push for it? Cause it's not going to happen otherwise. Hey, Bill, thank you. Um, our, our policy head is like twitching now and he doesn't know why, but it's, uh, it is, um, I, uh, that's that's great feedback. And and one, let me say, I don't think it happens without federal. I just don't. I think this one is going to take federal action, especially now, because unfortunately, with COVID, states and cities are going to all be suddenly looking at, at budget cuts. Atlanta, our mayor ran on on housing, said it was the number one priority, uh, passed a multi hundred million dollar bonding bill. And just uh, 10 days ago, they killed the they killed the bonds because of budget cuts because of COVID, which is is just so discouraging. And I think it is um, so. We are we are actually working on that. And maybe I can say just a little bit more about tri sector. My my personal bias is the private sector is the best at building houses. Habitat builds a lot of houses. We're one of the biggest home builders, single family home builders. But we're not supposed to be the the volume. And they're known high. We're the highest volume by far of a nonprofit housing. Uh, developer, but nonprofits can play, but the private sector is good, but the private sector won't do it without the combination of an incentives. And, and we have to figure out how to make the math work. So to me, you know, the, the omnibus bill to be specific at the federal level, that I think would work would be first um, increase low income housing tax credits, because that's one of the most cost effective ways to leverage it. But think more about permanent affordability. One of the problems with the tax credits is they expire. And when they expire, the housing then goes to full market. And we're losing more units than we're gaining right now in many uh, cities uh, because of that. The second, um, so fully fund the increased funding for housing tax credits, fully fund the vouchers. I mean, the vouchers really do create freedom to move and help with that whole issue of mixed income. But you have to have the local piece, which is to make sure people would accept vouchers. Um, and so that they, you can actually uh, create it. And I think at the, at the city level, you can create the energy for often, I think it's easier to create new mixed income than it is to sort of batter down the walls of, of the high income neighborhoods. Um, but I think there is energy to create mixed income. And a lot of people want to live in mixed income communities. So uh, I would go that way. And then the third would be to me, um, an investment in affordable home ownership, because that is not just good for the families, but also good for communities. And we know that communities with a higher incidence of home ownership uh, have lower crime and better other outcomes. And there's no magic to it. Everybody shouldn't be a homeowner, but we know it's an important piece of the mix. And what's happened particularly for low income and minority families is that's been the best way to create intergenerational assets. So as we think about the whole equity piece, affordable home ownership to me is a piece of it. And the piece I would add to that would maybe be putting in covenants with the subsidy 
for long-term permanent affordability. So one of the things we had to do to compromise in really expensive markets, like some of the ones you all live in, is to move to a shared equity model because the family can't afford a $400,000 house, even with some subsidy. But if you had a shared equity model, they could still earn equity, still own the home, but then the lender, whether it's Habitat or, or the city or someone else, would retain equity as well, which creates long-term affordability, or through a land trust or other mechanism, um, create, create a situation where you know that you're creating long-term affordability in those pockets so that as cities grow and we want them to grow and succeed, we don't quickly then grow ourselves right back into the situation we had. So I don't pretend any of this is easy, but that's those, those would be the, the three I'd go after at first. Thank you. Uh, John Muse, next. Thank you for joining us today. We've been a big fan, our family of Habitat, and it's supported you guys with time and treasure over the years. We now have uh, our family foundation's number one goal is to get to funding affordable housing. And as you mentioned, uh, the most of the models we've looked at that have worked well have been a mix between market rate and affordable. So my question is, is this in terms of what you found at uh, Habitat? There seems to, I mean, if you, if you're addressing 30 to 120% of AMI, what, what have you found is the break point between renting and owning? What, what income level? Yeah, the, and, and I would say, um, you know, if this goes to one of the axioms I really like is there are problems you solve and tensions you manage. A lot of times what we find is we're in competing goods. We wanna help families down at 30 to 50, but it takes a lot more subsidy for that family to become a homeowner or you know renter than it will be for that family that's 80 to 120. But they actually both need help that you know they, they and so it's valid. So how do we get the right transparent subsidy, sort of the most efficiently allocated? I think for home ownership, the market struggles to serve any of them right now. You know, some habitat affiliates have been sort of building non-habitat branded houses in the 80 to 120 because there's a huge unmet demand at that level. But it's tricky. Yeah. The math still doesn't work there either. You know, it still actually requires labor costs, as you right. say. So, it, so I, I think the, you know, our experience is maybe only one out of 20 families ought to be buying a home at those lower income bands. Um, right. But it's an incredible opportunity. And when I should say ought to be, has the steady income, has no debt, has all the things that, we, you know, we expect or require for them to be able to qualify to, you know, to our underwriting standards. Um, which are friendlier than than most, but it is. Uh, but our our the ideal to me would be what would catalyze the market to reduce the barriers so the market would create meaningfully more supply. You know, a, a lot of supply. And what would be the most efficient use of subsidy to to make that supply work? And and to me, um, that that's where I think it comes back to partially the the zoning and carrots. You know, something certainly has worked in some markets or density bonuses. But what could what could you give the developers in markets that no longer, you know, have less driving? Could you, you know, flex on parking spaces? That's been a big one. Could you give them yeah. more units? We had a, a developer in Toronto that got two extra floors for a condo building, is, but one of the floors had to be habitat. And so, you know, obviously our, our volunteers were not out, you know, walking on girders, but they did the interior fit out of that floor. And, um, while the, the developer did the, the rest of the unit, but that created vertical mixed income, which we thought was a great, a great idea. So yeah. I, I try not to be um, too narrow, you know, to me, it's sort of how do we get the principles right and then let the local context determine what's the, the best mix in that piece. But I think it starts with, you know, just literally working the math and going, okay, at 40%, 80%, 120%, here's what that family can afford if they were going to spend 30% of their money on housing. What would it take for us to have more supply of housing that actually was tolerable? The other one I'm actually wildly in favor of is building smaller um, houses. So not tiny houses, which are actually pretty inefficient, but less living, you know, our, our living space per person has exploded in the last 30 years. And we could, we could actually... Uh, probably do better. You know, the a typical habitat house is a three bedroom, two bath, 1100 square foot house. 
that's pretty much what a house in post-war 1950, that was kind of a middle-class house. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, we, we, our expectations have moved, but, um, but I'm actually very much in favor of, of getting more housing into the space that we do have because, uh, because we need more units. But I don't know if that, if that answered, but I mean, yeah. the pieces of it. It's case by case, really, is what you're saying. But I think, I think, more multifamily needs to be part of the equation. And that gets to public policy and the local level to get a building permit requiring new multifamily projects to have some percentage affordable, I think. That's right. And, and, but then maybe a carrot that says, if you do that, or if you have a much higher percentage affordable, you get a bigger, uh, you get more subsidy or more tax abatement. Well, that policy alone will suppress a little bit the land value. That's that's the problem. If you only do the requirement but not the incentive, it hasn't gotten us enough units. And we and so I'm 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 for it, but we want more units. The other piece I think we can't leave out is transit oriented, and that's this is city context by city context. But but um, where we have uh, good transit lines, we ought to be going dense around transit. I mean that's the part with my friends in Northern California I've never understood. You don't need to make it all dense, but why on earth wouldn't you make it dense along the train line? Because then you could you could fit a whole lot more people without clogging all the roads. So it seems to me the being very thoughtful about where the density is makes a lot of sense. And that's less attractive to a high end developer if you're right Correct. next to. It. Yeah. Uh, exactly, and you could preserve then the single family neighborhoods and not just fight. To, so it's, I think there can be middle ground that that could achieve the our goals. All good ideas. So a few questions Thanks. that we are not able to get to. Um, if you you know, anybody who wants to give us a question, I'm sure Jonathan would be happy to uh, email an answer, uh, but we want to end on time. So let me turn it over to Bill Galston to wrap up. Thanks, Jim. Uh, this has been a great session and th thanks John for sharing your wisdom and your passion with us. Uh, your response to the questions you got about religion and habitat Reminded me of a famous story about the Archbishop of New Orleans, you know, who you know, came under tremendous pressure to close down the parochial schools in that city because all the Catholics had left and mostly African-American Protestant young people were being educated in those schools. And he was asked, well, why are you doing this, Archbishop? And he said, we're educating these kids, not because they're Catholic, but because we're Catholic. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and I was reminded of that story because of its connection, connection with no labels. Mm. Uh, you know, why are we all on this call? You know, it's because of who we are. You know, we're all citizens, despite our many differences. We're all patriots. Uh, we want the best for our country. But we know that just wishing for the best isn't going to get the best. We need to act. And as you indicated, part of the action that we need is in the public sector. I mean, we have a lot of people on the private sector on this call, and they can, they can all do work in this area or other areas where they're directly involved. You know, we have the head of a family foundation who's devoted to the cause of affordable housing that you just heard from. But as you, as you said yourself, there's also a public policy component. And what we've learned the hard way in the past two generations is that for the most part, we don't get the public policy we need hmm. unless the two political parties can work together on it. It's very rare that one political party can enforce its will on the other for very long, and certainly not in this area, which is so complicated. So, that's why we're doing what we're doing, building coalitions in the House and with the Senate and ultimately between the legislative and the executive branch in order to do the people's business. And if you believe that Vox Populi is Vox Dei, uh, then we're doing the Lord's work at the same time. So that's what we're doing here. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that is not going to happen without the active participation of all the people on this call and hundreds, if not thousands more of people equally committed and 
you know, equally skilled and experienced across the country, which is the network that No Labels is now trying to build. Mm-hmm. So thank you for thank you for sharing your wisdom. I'm not going to hit you up for a donation. Should be the money should be flowing in the other direction. Uh, but I can't say as much for the rest of the people on this call. You know who you are. So thanks so much. And uh, with that, Jim, I believe, unless there's any further business, we stand adjourned. I think, uh, thank you so much, Jonathan. And uh, hopefully this is the beginning of a dialogue uh, that we can, uh, can continue. Jonathan Reckford believes affordable housing has often been a forgotten social need that the COVID-19 crisis has made even more urgent. Without space, internet, food delivery, and the ability to socially distance and shelter in place, many low-income families find it almost impossible to stay safe. Reckford believes it is time for a national commitment to solve this problem. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.